0: Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today.
1: Because we know that God is already here, and he is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message.
0: Here we are on the second Sunday of Advent. For those of us who may be unfamiliar with this tradition, Advent is a season within the church for preparing to celebrate Christmas. And by Christmas, we mean the incarnation, the first true and ultimate gift that makes all our other celebrations possible. God coming down to earth through the birth of a child, a baby named Jesus. And one of the repeated ways that the scriptures frame our understanding of Jesus coming into the world, of who Jesus is and what Jesus brings into this world and our lives is through the image of light. So through this Advent season, we're getting ready for Christmas by reflecting on this theme, understanding the coming of Christ as the inbreaking of light, light into our darkness. And I wanna ask you this question. When you were a child, were you afraid of the dark? I mean, when we're children, it's not uncommon to be afraid of the dark because innately we fear what we cannot see, right? We do not trust the unknown and the darkness reflects the unknown. Finding themselves in the dark, young children, you know, they imagine creatures, monsters that are waiting in the shadows to grab them. Now as adults we may laugh at how silly this sounds from the mouth of a child, but the truth is even as we grow up we can still find ourselves afraid of the dark too. Right? I mean, think about it. If we hear a strange noise in our house while it's the middle of the afternoon, we might think to ourselves, well, that's a little odd. And we'd probably not even give it a second thought, wouldn't even get up to check it out. But on the other hand, if we suddenly were to hear a strange noise in the middle of the night, in our totally darkened house, say, at two in the morning, most of us would get a little nervous, edgy. We would not be okay with just going back to sleep until we checked out the source of that sound. And by the way, when we get up and go check out that noise, are we doing it in the dark? <laughs> Heck no, no, not at all. We're turning on a light. We're turning on all the lights depending on how freaked out we are. Even as adults, few if any of us are comfortable Being in the dark, being in total pitch black, can't see my hand in front of my face, darkness. I mean, most people can't last in total darkness like that for more than a few minutes before they begin to panic. No one likes being in the dark for long. Darkness is uncomfortable. Darkness is confusing. Darkness can be terrifying. And today, through the words of an Old Testament prophet and one of Jesus' disciples, we're going to confront The darkness in our lives. Together, we will face the darkness that goes far beyond the physical absence of light. Together, we will consider the darkness that eclipses our hearts, our minds, and our relationships with each other. We're going to do this so that we can better appreciate the light that God has given us in Christ. So here's our scripture reading today from Isaiah chapter 9 and the gospel of John chapter 1. Here they come.
1: The first reading for this second Sunday in Advent is taken from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. is taken from the New Testament book of John, chapter one, verses one through five. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: As Isaiah chapter 8 opens, God talks about people walking in darkness, and not just any darkness, but a land of deep darkness. But who is Isaiah talking about? Who is he referring to, and why is this their situation? I mean, who turned all the lights out? Well, here's a quick refresher. Here's a quick reminder of what's going on in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, first of all, was called by God as a prophet to the people of Israel. Specifically, he was called to speak to the Northern Kingdom of Israel, also known in this book as Ephraim. The Northern Kingdom of Israel had thrown itself into darkness by turning away from the Lord, by doing what was right in their own eyes, rather than living the way God intended, justly, mercifully, generously, lovingly. As a community, they were worshiping idols, which basically means they were worshiping and glorifying themselves. So, Isaiah was sent by God to warn the people that playing around in the dark leads to plunging into even greater darkness. The first few chapters of Isaiah speak of God's judgment upon his people, of leaving them in the dark if that's where they choose to stay, and in that darkness, allowing his people to fall into the hands of the Assyrian Empire. At that time, the Assyrian Empire was the superpower of the ancient world. When we get to Isaiah chapter 9, God is speaking in the aftermath of the northern kingdom of Israel falling under the dominion of Assyria. The Assyrian Empire now occupies all the territory in and around Israel and has imposed heavy taxes on the people. All their towns have been leveled to the ground, and most of those who survived have been sent into exile, out of their homeland, into the foreign country of Assyria. It's into this context, understandably a very dark time for the people of Israel. Their particular darkness was the darkness of loss, the darkness of scarcity, the darkness of the unknown, of fear and depression. I mean, the life they had once known lay in ruins. Their relationship with God appeared forever lost. They found themselves away from home in a strange and foreign land captive to an oppressive ruler whose intention was to extinguish their existence from the faiths of the earth. And to say in the light of this that they were uncomfortable and more than just a little confused would be an understatement. They were a people who were completely disoriented and hopeless. They were a people who were seriously afraid about tomorrow wondering in the darkness if they even had a future to which they could look forward. And it's here in Isaiah chapter 9 from the center of this very present darkness that the prophet Isaiah speaks of the dawning of a great light. With no illusions about the reality of their despair and how desperate things are for his people, Isaiah points not to God's absence, but to the Lord's presence as the light that will end Israel's darkness. The people are being assured their seemingly endless night will not last forever. That even as their fields are scorched and their crops are dead, God promises the eventual arrival and joy of springtime, of a harvest festival that will not only restore their land but actually enlarge it and increase their joy. In the throes of one of the bleakest midwinters in Israel's history, God promises peace even as war is still raging. He says that the very means of violence by which his people currently suffer will one day be retired and put to rest once and for all. Now, if you know your Bible, it would be many years, centuries, in fact, of waiting before this prophecy would be fulfilled. So this word of hope in Isaiah 9, like many others, flickered like a candle in the dark as the people waited for the light God promised to dawn. More than 500 years before the start of the gospel, in fact, as the people of Israel actually returned back to their homeland after their long time of captivity, first in Assyria and then in Babylon, Jewish religious leaders began to write commentaries on various books of the Old Testament called Targums. And one of these Targums dealt with the prophecies out of Isaiah, like the one we just read. And in that Jewish commentary on Isaiah, the prophecy that we looked at today became understood to be part of God's promise to send a Messiah or the Christ. But who exactly would this Messiah be? Well, when we turn to the gospels, specifically today's passage in the Gospel of John, we see that the writer, one of the disciples, is telling us quite clearly the answer to that question is Jesus. You see, John takes the story of Jesus's birth in Bethlehem, what Matthew and Luke so tell so intimately, and he casts it against the wider canvas of the cosmos of all creation, The beginning of John's gospel with its emphasis on light, verse 4, that in the life of Jesus is the light of all humankind, and verse 5, that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, that the light, the darkness has not overcome. And if we even read a little further than we did today in verse 7, that Jesus in coming into the world is the true light that enlightens every person. John wants us to understand the great light God promised through the prophet Isaiah, The one later Jewish teachers came to expect as the Messiah, that light comes. That Messiah is fulfilled. The dawning of the light comes with the birth of a baby named Jesus. Now I could move on right now, but I'd imagine that there's at least one person asking, how does John know that Jesus is the light God promised through Isaiah? How does John know that this Jesus is the long awaited and expected Messiah? It's a great question. And the answer is, if we look more closely at Isaiah's prophecy, we discover God reveals where the promised light would initially be focused and where it would minister. Open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Notice in verse 1 how Isaiah specifically talks about the land of Zebulun and Nephtali as being in the spotlight for the coming of the Messiah. Do you see it there in verse 1? Okay, now stay with me now. You see, years before this prophecy, shortly after the death of Solomon, Ten of the tribes of Israel rebelled against their king and split off to form the new nation, the northern kingdom of Israel, to whom Isaiah writes. Meanwhile, the remaining two tribes in the south became known as the southern kingdom of Israel or the land of Judah. Okay. now Zebulun and Naphtali were two of those ten tribes in the new northern kingdom of Israel. But here's the thing. As Isaiah mentions in his first verse in chapter nine, they were relatively insignificant tribes. I mean, if you were to stop right now and do a quick Bible survey, you'll notice that these two tribes are rarely mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. In fact, and when they are mentioned, they're never spoken of as having any important role in frankly anything. That is, until God mentions them here in Isaiah chapter nine. And notice again, these are the only tribes in Northern Israel That God included in connection with the coming of the light, the Messiah. Now let's realize what the disciple, the gospel writer John, understood, what he had experienced firsthand. Where did Jesus live during his earthly life? Where did Jesus conduct the majority of his ministry? Jesus grew up in Galilee, in the town of Nazareth, Jesus, when he started proclaiming the kingdom of God, relocated to Capernaum, still in Galilee, and continued to travel all around Galilee. It was in Galilee that Jesus performed his first miracle. It was in Galilee that Jesus selected the majority of his 12 disciples. It was in Galilee that he spent most of his time preaching and teaching and performing various healings and miracles. You probably have figured it out, but guess which tribes of Israel once inhabited the land of Galilee? That's right, Zebulun and Naphtali. This is how John knows that Jesus is the light God promised through Isaiah. And it's the light John wants us to understand has dawned, not just for Israel, but for all the world, for all creation, for you and me. But who is this Jesus? And just how powerful is this light Christ brings into our lives and our world? How does this light of Jesus save us from the darkness all around us? Well, back to Isaiah. He offers us several different ways of seeing and appreciating the light that Christ offers. Jesus is the light of a wonderful counselor. From Jesus, we receive wisdom that goes beyond anything ever known to us before. It's living wisdom that comes to us in the thick of our troubles and despair. It's understanding that comes in the throes of all our worries and our fears and assures us that we no longer have to figure things out by ourselves. Christ is with us and his light knows the way forward and will lead us home, lead us into the full and abundant life for which we long, for which we were created. Jesus is the light of mighty God. Jesus is not the Lord's representative or spokesperson. Jesus is God incarnate, God in person, All power and authority are his. Nothing and no one is beyond his reach. No enemy, no opposing force is his equal. From his resurrection from death itself, Jesus proves what John declares, that the darkness cannot overcome his light. Jesus is the light of our everlasting Father, eternal and enduring. Not only will this light never go out, but this light of Christ shines on us to remind and assure us that we are eternally and enduringly God's beloved children. Jesus comes to bring us back to the Father, a Father who comforts and provides, a Father who in Christ does not impose himself on us, but a Father who in Christ sacrifices himself for us. Jesus is the light of of our prince of peace. Jesus is the light of our peace, Isaiah writes. The English word peace here is actually the Hebrew word shalom. You've heard that word before. But to remind you, shalom is about harmony and balance, not the absence of conflict alone. Shalom is about all things being made right again. So the light of Jesus doesn't just reveal what is hidden. The light of Jesus doesn't just reveal what is missing or what is broken. The light of Jesus changes the landscape. Its heat and warmth bring growth. Like the sun above, relationships are reconciled by the light of Christ. Sin is forgiven by the light of Christ. Justice is exercised by the light of Christ. Health is restored by the light of Christ. The light of Jesus fosters shalom, wholeness, well-being, prosperity, security in our lives and in this world. Wonderful counselor, mighty God everlasting father, prince of peace. To all of these images from Isaiah, John in his gospel further describes the light of Christ as the word of God. And John here, when he says Jesus is the word of God, goes well beyond saying that God is speaking to the world through Jesus, though that's certainly part of it. But he's saying much more than that. John is declaring the light of Christ to be the word made flesh. And you probably have heard that logos is the Greek word translated into English here as word. And in the Bible, logos refers to the creating action of God through his word. The Lord speaks. And whatever it is, creation, revelation, redemption, when the Lord speaks, it happens. It is done. Talk isn't cheap with God. The word of God brings life. And John's point is because Jesus is the word of God, meaning God in all God's self-revealing action, the creative power of God, Jesus is then the bearer of the life of God. In declaring Jesus to have always been and to always be, to be the creating word of God, John is underscoring just how powerful the light of Christ is. Jesus as the life of God is the light of truth, the revelation of how things truly are and the illumination for leading all things to fully become all they were created to be. And this light, this light of Jesus, will never burn out and never fade away. The light of Jesus will keep on shining, bringing life everlasting, leading us forward into eternity. Like the people to whom Isaiah was first speaking, like to those whom John was writing long ago, we can find ourselves walking in darkness. I mean, opposing forces still try to darken our world today. We have war, we have famine, we have partisanship, we have racism, we have sexism, we have ageism, we have persecution, we have injustice, we have economic disparity and hardship, we have natural disasters. And over the much of this past year, we've been living through one of the strangest and darkest times in world history. I mean, everything about this global pandemic continues to be uncertain, contested, frustrating, and just so overwhelming. Everyone has an opinion. But we're not all on the same page, right? And the leaders that we normally look to for offering guidance or a steady hand are struggling to do so. They've struggled for months. Not that at this point we would believe or accept what they tell us anyway. And many of us are struggling. Many of us are devastated. Many have lost someone. And many are just pretending or demanding that everything go back to normal. And in the midst of all that, the future still remains uncertain. Can we all just admit that we're afraid of the dark right now? Can we all at least confess how much we are anxious and worried about what we can understand and frustrated about all that we can't control? Maybe your darkness is more personal. Maybe it's closer to home. Maybe in the midst of all that's going on out there, the darkness that you're facing is in here or in here. Maybe you're going through the motions of living, but deep down underneath, you really just feel weighed down. Maybe yours is a darkness that you know is there, but you just can't seem to put your finger on it. It eludes you. Perhaps you're haunted by the shadows of an opportunity missed or a chance not taken. Or maybe it's a past trauma or secret wound you just keep trying to deal with all alone, sweeping it under the rug, stuffing it in a closet, but it just keeps looming over you rearing its ugliness and pain when you least expect it. Disheartening conversations, division within families and friends, division in our nation and our world, heart-wrenching trials and suffering, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, broken relationships, broken hearts, broken lives. It doesn't take much to see the growing shadows all around. It can be easy these days to just surrender ourselves to the night To our darker selves, it can be tempting to just opt to stay in bed through winter. Sometimes it can feel like the darkness will consume us. But beloved, the word today is that the darkness is not all we have. Christmas is about remembering the light, the light that has come into our darkness. God enters into the darkness with us. The message of Christmas does not deny that it's very dark out there, chaotic and confusing, at times bleak and even a bit scary. However, the revelation of Christmas is we who walk in darkness, for we who walk in darkness, the source of our hope is something outside of ourselves, something beyond us. It's the understanding that we can't dispel our own darkness We can't dispel our own darkness. Coming together to work harder for the common good is a great idea, but it won't dispel the deeper darkness within each of us. Being kind and sharing our abundance with others who don't have enough is the right thing to do, but it will not dispel the deeper darkness within each of us. Christmas is realizing we can't fix ourselves because the true darkness with which we all struggle, that true darkness of which we all fear, the darkness within is of our own making. I mean, think about it. God didn't ever say, God never said in the beginning, let there be darkness. No, God said, let there be light. We only know there is darkness when we look away from the light. Darkness exists when we refuse to live in the light. And so we cry out to our God in the darkness of our own collective making saying, save us, save us from ourselves. And it is directly into this darkness, our darkness, that the Christ child enters, that the light comes back into the world. Our hope is not built on the inspiration of human actions or human institutions. Our hope is grounded in the illumination of a star over a baby born in Bethlehem. Our hope shines through the radiance of God, miraculously viewed through the face of a newborn child. Our hope endures because of the sunrise that reveals an empty tomb that once held the body of this same God who was bruised and broken on a cross to cast out all the darkness in our hearts, all the evil in this world, once and for all. Wherever you are right now, whatever doom and gloom has befallen you, hear the good news of the gospel. The light of Christ comes. The light of Jesus is born in the darkest of places. There is no sphere of existence. There is no road upon which we walk, no matter how covered in shadow that Christ does not walk before us, guiding us through our nightfall. Whatever evil has befallen us or whatever hell we have brought upon ourselves, God is with us in Christ. But we have to stop focusing alone only on the darkness. We have to stop fixating on all that is wrong in our lives. And we have to look We have to look to and follow the light of Christ, the one who is good, right, and true. In the midst of all of our worries, our fears, and our doubts that are very real, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to follow Christ because the light of Christ, as John declares, is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Greek word John uses here for overcome means to grasp, to seize, to overtake. So in other words, John is assuring us whatever darkness we are facing cannot catch up, cannot grasp, cannot seize and overtake the light of Christ once it's come into our lives. On the other hand, once that light of Jesus has pierced our lives, the darkness itself can be overcome. It can be diminished, weakened, and ultimately eliminated altogether. And we witness the truth of how this works through light in the natural world. Think about a cave of absolute darkness or a room that is completely blacked out. Just a sliver of light, a single ray of sunshine, or the flame of a candle can cut through that darkness like a hot knife through butter. And eventually, as that light increases, it fills up that whole space, removing the darkness altogether. The more of the light of Christ we allow into our lives, the more the darkness in our lives will be dispelled. The more of Jesus we listen to, abide in, and follow, the more our lives are fueled, inspired, guided by the heat, the warmth, and the light of Jesus. My friends, Christmas is the time when the gift of Jesus meets the grit of life, when the light we need enters into our very real darkness and begins to lead us out of that valley and on our way home. The question is, are we looking to that light? Are we being guided by it? Beloved, as we hang all our other lights this season, as we place our lights in our windows, on our doors, on our yards, or our trees, As we get home each night and walk into a dark house and flip on a switch, let's not forget the light we have been given in Jesus Christ. If we have embraced Jesus, we each carry that light of Christ within us. And the best indication that we are letting his light shine in and through us is that we are lighting up the lives of others who are wrestling with the same darkness we are. And now, perhaps more than ever, we need to look to the light of Christ before the darkness all around us. Let us together reflect enough light from Jesus in the form of an act of love, a word of truth, or a simple quiet act of service that we bring some cheer into the darkest corner of the life of another person. May the light of Christ shine brightly among us, casting out all our darkness and guiding us to live as a people of truth and as a people of hope. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.